Geek Top 5, Season 5. I'm so happy you're here. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> this is so exciting. Geek Top 5. I'm Jess. I'm Graham. And we are uh, we are turning the lights down low. We're we're tossing a couple of logs in the fireplace, and we are having a, a nice a nice quiet chat, a bit of a break from the hustle and bustle of of guests and all that jazz. It is, sounds romantic. I mean, we've been over that joke a few times before, <laughs> and you're you're constant leading me on. Essentially, <laughs> I'm not I'm sure s- if this I'm is sorry. the place to talk about it. That's not that's not the list I brought. But if you want to. <laughs> Yeah, let's move on. Let's move on. All right. It is reopening time in Toronto. Again, um, second time, third time, I don't even know. But we are going outside again. They're they're talking about ditching masks. Nobody's checking vax uh, certificates anymore. Regardless of what actually seems to be the actual status of the disease, it seems like we are trying to get life back to normal again. And every time that has happened, uh, we've jumped in with sort of our lists of, hey, here's some things that we're doing that's passing the time for us uh, that maybe could help pass the time for you. So while I like to think of those episodes as bookending the pandemic, we all know it hasn't gone quite that way but we're we're gonna try to do that again and hope for the best this time right this time's a charm let's yeah let's uh let's look at it more like we've ended several books of the pandemic this is just the ending of the most recent book of the pandemic and uh god knows how many more ahead of us but hey Let's put on a happy face. It's uh, we got cool stuff to talk about. We do. Each of I us have so. brought a list of five things that uh, just geeky things that, uh, that that we're enjoying, and we figure that you know, if you're tuning into a show called Geek Top Five, chances are you'll enjoy it too. Uh, so not exactly a dueling list, more like ten small commercials, I think. But uh, <laughs> but hey, well, well, I mean, we'll probably even surprise each other. Uh, Graham, did you want to kick us off with your number five? Sure. Uh, anytime we get close to Oscar season, and I, I actually don't even know when the Oscars are, are happening at this point, but I always get that itch to watch movies, and not just the uh, the, the Oscar-nominated movies, although some of those, but just movies in general, and filling in blanks, and with all the streaming services we have, it, it, there's a lot at your fingertips to check out. So recently I watched uh, Power of the Dog, that the movie that's uh, sort of leading the way in the Oscar nominations. It's a, a, a Western that was shot in New Zealand. It's got Benedict Cumberbatch and Jesse Plemons and Kirsten Dunst and is a real slow thinker movie, like something that you, you watch and, and enjoy and not worry too much about the plot. And then when it's over, you got a lot of stuff to stew on. Is and, the dog uh, the sheriff? Uh, is it like not that kind of movie <laughs> it sounds like it's, it sounds like what you're describing it's kind of like Air Bud but instead of playing basketball he's you know a lawman yeah and he's voiced by Benedict Cumberbatch yeah I'd watch that <laughs> <laughs> not, not that it's your typical sort of uh, Oscar bait movie but it's been a weird year and you never know yeah uh, no it's more about uh, repressed sexuality and uh, stuff like that <laughs> And possible psychopathic children. 
but it's a it's a cool movie and and a lot to talk about when you're finished. Uh, beyond that, I saw French Dispatch, the new Wes Anderson. So y- you know your mileage may vary with it. His that that director is uh, a bit of an acquired taste, and and his movies aren't for everyone. But I enjoy them, and um, it's it's at the very least beautiful to look at, and the the design of it is worth checking out, and the performances. So. Uh, and then beyond that, I watched some older movies uh, from throughout the decades. Going back to the 30s, I watched the original Love Affair. I watched the, the Kenneth Branagh Frankenstein from the 90s. Um, the uh, Ridley Scott, All the Money in the World, all sorts of stuff. Uh, and and just, it's always been interesting. No matter what I watch, I find that there's something enjoyable in it, even if it's... Sometimes even more so if it's kind of an obscure movie that has been lost to time. Like there's a, I watched this Michael Keaton movie called My Life. I'd never heard of it. It sort of seems like this 90s footnote. It's him and Nicole Kidman and he's just had a kid, but he's also been diagnosed with a terminal disease and he's coming to terms with his life. And it's it it completely vanished off the radar i think after it came out but it wasn't bad you know it wasn't great it has some racial stuff that maybe hasn't aged that well but they what doesn't heart yeah what doesn't <laughs> truly but also i think their heart was in the right place at the time it, it's got like some asian mysticism in there that that uh, definitely feels dated but was meant in a respectful way i think Anyway, it was interesting, and it's always uh, Michael Keaton is always fun to watch. So I'm trying to figure out, like, what do we actually call that on the list? Like, initially I was thinking Oscar bait movies, but that's not it. It's sort of movies in general, but is there a way to sum that up? And I'm thinking, like, what draws your attention to these movies? Is there, like, a certain, like, umbrella they all fall under? Or even just, like, something that's like a guidepost for you when you pick what you want to watch? Oh, man. Uh, well... If it's something I'm really going to sit down and pay attention to, it tends to be the Oscar bait movies. And if it's something that I'm just going to have on and have kind of not, it was more of a distraction. Like I, I, I'm not necessarily going to be doing other stuff while I'm watching it, but it, it's not going to get my full attention. Then it, I just tend to look for like '90s stuff. But I, it all falls under the sort of Oscar umbrella, I think, where it's just it always reignites my interest in movies in general. And I like to see the stuff that maybe has fallen by the wayside a little bit and, and figure out if there's anything redeeming in them. You know, there, there's this popular canon of movies and it keeps changing. And may, maybe that's it. The popular canon of movies that that's what we can uh, call it. That sounds super intellectual. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. That's what I'm going for. Excellent. <laughs> Uh, awesome. Uh, I, I, I don't know when to go with that, but it's like, it's sort of film archaeology. Yeah, yeah, I like that, uh, too. And one of the things I'm finding, especially going into these older movies, like, I, I haven't finished it yet, but there's this old Doris Day movie I started called The Pajama Game, and it and The Love Affair, they both start with these very, they're both love stories, and they start with these complex characters that are borderline irredeemable, or like, they're just they they're interesting characters and then as the love story takes hold they completely lose everything that's interesting and unique about them and they become sort of generic uh, lovey-dovey characters and it's been a real interesting thing to to 
see in those older movies, this pattern in them where it's like, let's make them really interesting. And then in order to make it palatable to the widest audience possible, drain them of anything that makes them interesting by the end of the movie. So that they're completely You say that like they don't do that anymore, completely ignoring the Hallmark film industry. (laughs) That's true. That's true. I I do tend to completely ignore the Hallmark film industry, (laughs) now that you mention it. As we all should. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, Uh, that's that's my big takeaway. Popular canon of movies. I hope you wrote down all those titles, because now you have to put them in the the hashtags or whatever. (laughs) Enjoy doing that. What's your number five? My number five, in a way, is the opposite of yours. Whereas yours is like a well-aged French wine, mine (laughs) is toilet vodka. (laughs) The number five on my list, geeky things have been keeping me busy lately, is Archer. Mm. And with a butt. So Archer, in summary, uh, it's an American, uh, it's a cartoon, it's all animated, I guess it's a sitcom, uh, it started in 2009, and it ran, I mean, it's still, like, it had 12 seasons up to 2016, and I know they're expecting to do more, um, it is about, the setting is in a sort of vaguely anachronistic Cold War spy agency, um, where all the characters in it are assholes, and they are assholes to each other for 20 minutes at a time. And that's the show. It is mostly successful, thanks to the fact that the main character, Sterling Archer, is voiced by H. John Benjamin, uh, who is probably at this point best known for this show, but you might also know him from like some of his older stuff, like he was Coach McGurk in home movies. He's Bob's Burgers. He's Bob... He's that guy. He's a very distinctive voice. And also uh, the character of his mother, who's played by Jessica Walter, uh, the late Jessica Walter, unfortunately. Uh, Lucille from Arrested Development is everyone's like, favorite mother that they love to hate. I think I think our audience might know him best as the weird Tribble inventor or whatever from that one-off short trek that was... Right, or, uh, or the ma- yeah, or the whatever, or the master from uh, Venture Brothers. Is that? Yeah, that's yeah. true. Um, yeah, a lot of this revolves around him. He's got this really deadpan, kind of ranting, mumbling, whining kind of comedic style. That's very popular type of comedy in animated production for a while in those uh, those early, you know, late aughts, early twenty tens. Uh, don't get me wrong. Lots of people love this show. It's got four primetime Emmy Awards. It's got a bunch of Critics' Choice Awards. Like, there's a reason it's been... It's had 12 seasons, and it's full of celebrity guest stars and stuff. Everyone from Bruce Campbell to Christian Slater to... Like, it's just a ton of people really like this show. This show, I kept up with it, and then recently... I I got to the seasons I missed, and then I binged the whole thing again, all 12 seasons, and I don't think I like this show very much. (laughs) What? I think I hate it, but I can't stop (laughs) watching it. When I'm having a bad day, you know, when there's, like, there's pandemic and World War III and, like, like all this stuff coming up, and, like, when I just cannot get to what... I should be doing or want to be doing, I sit in front of Archer and just let it run. And I'm trying to armchair Freud myself as to why. I don't know if it's because 
it takes misery and anxiety and puts a comedic spin on it, and maybe that's cathartic. But it's like if I had an eating disorder, this would be my like Pringles chips and ice cream. <laughs> oh man, we're gonna get letters about that one. <laughs> I maybe I I can't, and again. This is a very popular show. It's extremely successful, but the kind of antagonistic humor in it, I think it sort of has to be your jam, but it's just like, it's so trashy and so dirty that I, I, I don't want to, but I can't help but look. <laughs> and I can't really give you a good reason. So in terms of interpreting these lists as recommendations, this one's kind of a 50-50 for me. But, I mean, if nothing else, Holy Act did it pass the time, because those 12 seasons flew by. Hmm. I It's a series that I s- tried to start watching once, and for whatever reason it didn't click, and I never continued with it. I mean, in, in this golden age of streaming, there's always something else. So if it doesn't click immediately, you just move on. But uh, I, I, I always mean to go back to it, but because I didn't have that great a time the first time, I don't feel this strong need to but i do love the cast and every other thing i've seen like h john benjamin is hilarious i listened to his audiobook once and it had me in tears i was laughing so hard it he is definitely far and away the best part of the show hands down i mean it they got a very talented cast they've got a very talented team they do some really cool stuff on this show but it's definitely the h john benjamin is a spy show um, except for certain sort of spin-off, not spin-offs, but seasons where they change the thing around and they're not spies. Now they're like they're private eyes or they're like on a, an Indiana Jones adventure. But uh, basically because they were running out of things to do because there have been 12 seasons and how many assholes during the Cold War arcs can you do? And the answer is a lot, but you need a break every once in a while. I don't know. Archer in Canada, it's available on Netflix uh, it's FX in the States, so I don't know. You guys, it's crazy down there. Uh, but if you're up here and you want to take a look, I mean, it's irreverent, it's antagonistic, it is about crazy, bad people behaving crazily and badly. And if that's your thing, like it's like a reality show vibe. I mean, this does it real well. But for some reason, it is junk food. And where you're spending your time... Picking a select example of the critics' choice of the films that made a generation, I just have been binging this dumb cartoon, feeling it melt my brain, and I guess that's comforting. Okay, so what's your number four? Well, I was gifted a while ago the game Civilization VI, and it took me a while to finally install it and start it up. But as usual with the Civilization games, once I did, I got completely sucked into it. And I I haven't gotten... I don't think I have any of the DLC, so it's just whatever the base game was. And, and with the Civilization games lately, whenever there's a D- DLC or updates, it can drastically change the game. But the premise is you, you pick a leader, just like in all these Civilization games, you pick a leader in a civilization, and you start out in a small place, and you build your city. You found it. And as you 
go, you find barbarians and then you find other civilizations and you interact with them. And as all the civilizations are settling different parts of land and getting different materials, you start to interact and trade and sometimes wars happen. And eventually you win by completing various objectives. You can either conquer the whole world or you can build a spaceship or have just dominant culture. There's, there's a bunch of different ways to do it. And this game just it seems very similar to the last one, but it still sucked me in 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 a way that few other games do. I, I was playing it last night and I'm trying to be a responsible adult here, right? Like I'm a, a father, I got a job, I, I try to go to bed at a reasonable time, and it's getting close to eleven, and I know I should be shutting it down. But I'm playing as Brazil and uh, like Scythia and France have decided to team up and declare war on me, and I was so taken aback by it. I was like, I gotta, I can't let end here. I gotta find out what happens. And it's just a constant one more turn, one more turn. I'm building up my army, and I'm I'm actually winning. I think it's because my difficulty setting was relatively low, but I was still panicked, and I was like taking over some of their cities and finally peace was declared and I was like alright well I've captured these cities and I've got peace it's 1130 now I just need to do a couple more things you know make sure everything's copacetic before I save it for the night next thing I know it's like a quarter past midnight my eyes are bloodshot I'm in the 1800s and I've got uh, you know Bach on the way I, I there's like this insane pull where you never want to stop with this game Absolutely, yeah. Civilization is the king of just one more turn. <laughs> uh, it is so rewarding. It is, I mean, for one thing, it's a very optimistic game. Like, it's, it really is all about the glory of civilization and mankind, you know, evolving and progressing as a people and what it means to discover things and for amazing things to happen. Like, that's, it's a very feel-good game, but every turn, you're on the verge of something cool is happening. And, you know, maybe you're building the, like the, the Great Pyramids of Giza and it's one more turn away. Or maybe you're about to establish a trade route. They do an excellent job of always having the possibility for a good thing right around the corner. And in a way that you can't really get away with, with like a Call of Duty where, you know, all the good things basically mean you machine gunned a bunch of other people to death. <laughs> Like it feels good. Like it feels good to have you know to to build like the hanging gardens of Babylon in your city. Like, but along those lines, where you know it's it's not all feel good because you can develop nukes and just destroy your enemies or or be destroyed, and so there's a balance in the beauty there. You, you never have to deal with pandemics, uh, thankfully, but violence towards your fellow civilizations is part of the game and and i have tried to avoid it because it's hard <laughs> and it's easier <laughs> to win through like economic policies and and diplomacy and spies but man it's it's robust oh yeah it's always science victory for me i always want to be the you know developing the cool new technologies and stuff which which means that sometimes you end up at war but you have these drastically mismatched wars like maybe you just invented the fighter jet while the other guy still is doing trench warfare or i mean you know depending how long your difficulty is maybe you just invented the fighter jet while the other guy has muskets 
Well, I, I had the opposite problem when I was going against France. I'm attacking with crossbows, and they're shooting at me with, with muskets. So I wasn't Oof. too far off, but it was enough that I was like, oh, this is going to be dicey. Gunpowder gut is a major mid-game, like, a lot of stuff comes up to that, and a lot of stuff grows off that. If they're ahead yeah. of you on that hurdle, like, yeah, they're winning. <laughs> oh, hey, I still took the city, you know, and they, they were the ones who uh, were begging for peace. So, you know, it worked out. Okay, yeah, no, it sounds like your diplomatic uh, cultural victory is going great. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every every they declared war on me, and now every other country's denouncing me and calling me a warmonger just because I won. It's it's uh, ridiculous. That's politics. <laughs> <laughs> but I, one of the other fun things about it is all of the different civilizations, and and they represent people. Uh, the the leaders represent people th- from throughout history. Like you can have Teddy Roosevelt and Cleopatra having conversations with each other, but they all have their advantages and disadvantages. So even though the base mechanics of the game are the same, you're always aiming to do the same things. There are subtle tweaks based on who you pick that are going to change how you play the game and and the victories that are easiest for you to get. And I think that is something else about it that makes it really addictive. And and it takes hours and hours to get through one playthrough, and then you immediately want to start over again with someone else. Yeah, because that person might have an advantage that contributes to a whole different kind of victory. It's it's not just picking red, blue, or green. Like, a diplomatic victory requires you to play the game a lot differently than a scientific victory. Like, you have to do different things. You have to favor different advantages. You're, like, you're basically executing your civilization in an entirely different way. So... Really, depending what victory you're going for, like each victory could be seen as its own kind of mini game inside the big game of civilization. And that's assuming you stick to the one you choose. You might pick a, you know, a cultural victory, and then it turns out you're up against, uh, who was it in Civ Five? I think it was India, that for whatever reason their culture just exploded. And you're like, well, I don't think I can make the cultural victory, but uh, but diplomacy is going well. Maybe I'll try and get ahead of everyone and found the United Nations. And then you have to pivot. It just there's yeah. so many different things you can do. And again, that's part of the one more turn because it's let me just see how this is going to turn out. That's an excellent choice for passing the time, with the exception that you know once you pop, you can't stop. Right. <laughs> okay. What's your number four? My number four is. I mean, this show is called Geek Top 5, but this might be the geekiest thing we have ever had on there. I have been on a Starship research drive for the last little <laughs> while. Um, a little further out once you once you actually hear this, but the time of this recording, we're not too far from the premiere of Picard uh, Season 2. It premiered on March 3rd, 2022. And the end of Season 1... The last episode had the big reveal of what the like latest Starfleet was, and it was a huge disappointment and big fan outcry. What you got to understand, if you're not a Trekkie, is that the ships themselves are characters, uh, not as much as the you know the actual like actors, obviously, but like we are so familiar with the ships and they mean so many different things that that's an incredibly important part of the canon. In Picard season one, when they had Starfleet show up. They just copy pasted the same ship, like it was just the same new ship. Like some some of them had yellow nacelles and some had red ones, and people were really upset about it. Now, 
logically, it doesn't really matter, right? The point of the, the whole like climax of that episode had nothing to do with the ships, but folks said they wanted to see their Starfleet ships. And in the premiere of season two, I mean, we'll talk about it more because we're definitely talking about this season in a, in a wrap-up once it's done. But they did a lot to address a lot of the complaints from season one. And one of the things they did was assemble a Starfleet task force of ships and they got ships from all over the place. They have a bunch of ships that we recognize. The Sovereign class, like the, like the latest Enterprise from the latest movies. The Akira class, the Luna class. The Luna class we're just starting to see a lot of because that's the Titan from Lower Decks. And they also pulled a bunch of starships from Star Trek Online. Which is an MMO computer game. And I guess it's out on consoles, too. Uh, it's basically Star Trek World of Warcraft, where, like, for the purposes of having players and getting them involved, they've designed a ton of new ships in there. And these people said, what the heck? These ships look gorgeous. Let's bring them into canon. Let's make them, you know, real. Let's put them on the big screen. Now, if you've listened to this podcast before, you know I'm a big spaceship guy. <laughs> Uh, and technology guy, really. I love the ships. I love the the starfighters. I love the battle mechs. I love the I love the cool things that people build in sci-fi. And ever since this episode aired, I have been pouring over internet resources, learning everything I can about these new ships. What they're called. Who are they named for? When were they built? What new features do they have? What do they reference? What's the whole? Uh, it's. Okay, heavy trek here for a second, so if you're not a Trekkie, tune out. <laughs> One of the ships that shows up is the Ross class from ST from Star Trek Online, which I actually know a bit about this one. It is a 25th century refit of the Galaxy class, of like the Enterprise D, named for Admiral Ross from Deep Space okay, Nine. Okay, I was going to ask. Yep, absolutely. Where they basically, like, they up the Galaxy class to be 25th century. It gets a cool sort of gold Sovereign class deflector. They sweep out the warp nacelles and add this cool sort of command deck to the top and I just these are details that I crave I love this in world deep cut reference stuff and I love the design of cool starships and this goes back I mean I was like I was thinking about this and I remember like being a kid in grade school and reading the Star Wars essential guide to vehicles and vessels it was basically like one. It was a one pager about like where a Tie Fighter was built, and then the opposite page was like a blueprint. And like, here's the laser cannon. Here's the viewport. Here's the power generator. I think this speaks in a profound way to to some of the few differences in our characters. Where you had that and obsessed over that, I had the Star Wars Essential Guide to Characters, and that's what I obsessed. Yeah, over. Yeah, you're the, the people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now bring let me, but bringing it back. The wrap up is just. The there is something about that kind of stuff that appeals to me. The the fact that it's not just a fact that hey cool ship, although that doesn't hurt, but the fact that it's named after a character I know, that it has features that sort of make sense from the technology I recognize. It's it's fan fiction in a way, but it's now been adopted by like the mainstream, by the mainline, and brought into canon, and that feels like a victory almost. And it's just delightful to see it. And I have been spending way too much time. Uh, the Star Trek Online wiki on Memory Alpha. The Star Trek wiki on Memory Beta. The Star Trek wiki, especially for things that aren't quite canon. But now that line is kind of blurred. 
I love these ships. I love everything about it. And I just, I just, I'm waiting through technical details on how they rebuilt the phaser array. I can't tell you exactly why it's so fascinating, but I love it. And if that's the kind of thing that appeals to you, I got to tell you, the internet has you covered. That stuff is out there and it is great. That sounds wonderful. I was I was just happy to see an update on the the Stargazer, Picard's first command, which was seen in one episode of uh, Next Generation, and and they have a whole revamped one now, and that was that was cool enough for me. Uh, but yeah, we will definitely get more into Picard talk in a later episode. Uh, but I gotta say, why my dad is not really up to date on Star Trek stuff, but he loves. Patrick Stewart and Captain Picard, and and the thing that really got him in to watch the premiere of season two was the fact that Q was going to be in it. So I talked with him about it after we watched it, and I mentioned that Stargazer stuff, and he was impressed that I knew that. Like, you talking about the Ross class and whatever would completely blow his mind. So Would know, it blow his mind, on. or would he just tune out and start thinking about <laughs> something else? Let's be clear. If we kept it brief, I think it would blow his mind. All right, well, have him listen to this episode and ask for feedback, because I'm pretty <laughs> sure this kind of thing, like, either you get it or you don't. Uh, that, the Akira class that was in there, that was the Thunder Child. That was the same ship from First Contact. It, like, it's a, ah, it's so great. Okay, anyway, <laughs> we should move on, because I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna gush about this stuff. But, yeah, it's cool. If you're into that kind of thing, check it out. There's lots of stuff online. Graham, what's your number three? Okay, so this is taking us back a bit to my number five as well, but it's uh, through a different medium. It's still classic movies, but via books. So lately on the drive to drop the kid off at school, I've been reading aloud these books that I've got because I, I have this this problem where I buy books and then as like a comfort food, I think. I, I just like the act of buying them. What is that called? Like therapeutic shopping? Sounds right. So uh, I buy books and then they end up just sitting on the shelf for ages. And I've finally, I've got a big pile of them to finally actually read through. It's become my latest pandemic project. And these car rides are the best way to do it. It's like 15 minutes there, 15 minutes back. It's a half hour of reading. I read out loud. And, and so everyone in the car gets a bit of an education, especially when I get these uh, nonfiction books. So we read, uh, Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom, and Howard Hughes' Hollywood by Karina Longworth. <laughs> How old is your kid? <laughs> He's mostly distracted listening to music. It's fine. And I, I censor where necessary. Okay. <laughs> uh, and believe me, it is, for him, I'm sure, so dry and boring that he tunes out. And there, by the time we, there's a racy part, he's off doing whatever. It's fine. I'm a great parent. Uh, and so... <laughs> Uh, that book is by Karina Longworth, who's the host of a great podcast, one of our podcast contemporaries. It's called uh, You Must Remember This. And it's, it's very good, and, and it's a huge book. But that sort of chronicles Howard Hughes' involvement in Hollywood from the 30s to the 60s. And then after we finished that, I started reading a book I got ages ago called Star, How Warren Beatty Seduced America. And uh, that book... Is It picks up with Warren Beatty as a movie star in the late 50s, early 60s and goes to the till about the year 2000. So I've got like 70 years of movie history and it was fascinating reading them and finding the overlaps between the two that I had no idea when I started. But like Warren Beatty's last movie, which came out after the book ended, was a Howard Hughes movie. 
So they all dovetailed together really well. They both were notorious womanizers in and creepy in their own ways. Although, I mean, Warren Beatty is still alive, but I don't. So I should be saying is anyway, I don't know. Tenses are weird, but it's just a, <laughs> a, a great book and a really interesting snapshot into the whole history of Hollywood, basically. And I learned so much and it made me want to find these other old movies and watch. And, and like part of the reason I watched The Love Affair, that 1930s movie, is because Warren Beatty ended up remaking it in the 90s. So and I'm going to eventually get around to that and see how they compare. But uh, fascinating stuff. I love this behind the scenes movie stuff. Just the, the same that I like that that in comic books and, and video games. But movies, there's... So much more information about it because it's a more popular medium. So stories like this, there's so many people who want to talk about it and uh, lots of dirt and and lots of gossip and who knows how much of it is true and how much is people just stabbing people in the back. But great reads, both of them. So you're not really looking at it like you're not looking for technical behind the scenes of these movies. You're not really looking for... You know, look at how the camera was shot or why they chose that particular color for the set. But you're looking more for, like, you know, the the director's dark secret where they, <laughs> they built the set over the grave of his widowed mistress. <laughs> more to that end. But there's also interesting details about why certain people were cast in certain movies and why, especially in the Warren Beatty one, it's, it's so eye-opening um, when and, and it's something I knew before, but this just emphasized it. When a movie's a hit, everyone involved with it wants to take credit for why it was successful. And when a movie flops, everyone wants to explain why it's not their fault that it flopped. Like, oh, I was saying that we shouldn't do this from the get-go and nobody listened to me. And it's just fascinating. And, and watching people pass the buck as they try desperately to save their careers throughout this. And like Howard Hughes doesn't have that problem because none of his money comes from the movies. It's all from his drill bit industry. And so he can just make terrible movies and make these terrible decisions. And, and it doesn't matter if it's a hit or a flop to him. So again, amazing contrast between the two books. It was really an interesting pair of readings in the last few months. Yeah, a lot of a lot of film centric. I mean, those attitudes you're describing, I don't think exclusive to the the film industry. Uh, I don't want to segue into talking about The Office, but you know, <laughs> ahem. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, like what I'm coming at essentially is like, is that really that different from your number five? I guess so, because number five is watching the movies, and number three is doing the is digging up the dirt on them. But uh, you've got a like a, an unrealized career as a as a film sleuth. <laughs> I would love to do that, especially I'm I'm really in the mood for it right now. Just going through these old movies and and whatever. I think the hardest part for me would be in going back and researching primary sources and trying to read like 1940s newspaper articles and sussing out what's real and what isn't in those. That would be brutal. I'm kind of happy just to read other people who have done the sleuthing. And then having entertaining anecdotes for parties and whatnot. How do you work a 1940s director, like, not taking credit for a bad movie into a conversation at a party? <laughs> Depends on the party. <laughs> All right. Uh, I don't know. It's just like, uh, you know, you get talking about stuff and uh, you never know what's going to come up. 
I mean, I know what's going to come up now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having a vision of my future, and it looks a lot like like in a late '90s, like you know, behind the scenes DVD featurette. But that's okay. <laughs> Most conversations with me end up looking like that eventually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the frame rate. <laughs> okay, no more film archaeology, but from a different. You're a you're a you're a double threat. Unless, oh yeah, unless you got more of this even further up your list. We'll see. Okay. <laughs> What's your number three? My number three is it sort of a two in one? Maybe not. My number three is XCOM two, but also Star Wars. Which it's going to take a minute to explain. XCOM two uh, is a twenty sixteen. It's a it's a turn based tactics video game. Uh, developed by Firaxis. It's a sequel to an it's award-winning, it's a sequel to an award-winning. It's a tactical strategy game about like aliens invading the earth and humans fighting back. Um old game, real good. Really like this game. Uh there's basically two phases to to it. Think of it as like there's the actual like guys on the ground phase where yeah, you sort of you take turns one guy at a time. You move one of your guys; they move one of their alien guys, and you sort of like try to move your guys into the right position to shoot each other, basically. And then the second phase of the game is the management phase behind it, which plays a lot like a board game uh, in terms of if you think about those board games where you're like collecting cards to make your position more powerful, or worker placement games. And things like Carcassonne and the like, where you are like on the Earth. Do you like do you go here and recover this scientist, or do you go here and save these civilians from alien abduction? You have this many resources. Do you put it towards researching alien technology, or do you put it towards like developing body armor for your guys? There's so many options and only so much you can do, and a ticking clock. And then you see, you know, if your decisions were the right ones when you get into the game. Like the actual shooting part. Lots of fun, great game, lots of different ways to play it. It's pretty old, though. In that time, the developers at Firaxis have basically opened up the game for modding, for making fan-made additions. They're saying, look, load your own voice files, load your own 3D models, load your own graphics, like whatever. Feel free to play with the game however you like. And I did this a little bit back in the day. People added, basically, they added Mass Effect characters to the game. So instead of having, you know, human soldier Joe, I had, like, Garrus Vicarian and a bunch of his voice lines ripped from Mass Effect 2 and 3, and and that was kind of fun. It was the Mass Effect guys fighting off this alien invasion. That was cool. I went back to check this out a few months ago and just said, what's happened here since the last time I was in this game? And people have gone all out on the stuff that they have done to add on to this game. And with a little bit of work, I basically turned this into an incredible Star Wars-themed tactical game, where all the invading aliens and the bad guys have all been replaced by, like, Imperial Stormtroopers, you know, like, the, the alien big robots are replaced by ATSTs. the music has been completely dumped and replaced with that John Williams score, machine guns are now the Stormtrooper blasters, complete with, like, you know, the blaster bolt effect and the, the sound effects, the Ben Burt sound effects. And then you download all the stuff to load it in and had this one of the best Star Wars video games I have ever played and completely mm. fan developed to be built into this game. 
That sounds really cool. You you have always been much bigger on modding games than I am. I think I'm a, I'm a little too timid to dive into that because I'm worried about breaking the game because that that can happen too with some mods, but I'm it doesn't happen often. Uh, but yeah, I I've steered away from it. But I know that you can do that in Civilization too, where you you've got completely different looks to these things by adding Star Wars or Mass Effect or whatever to it. So so yeah, Civilization a, Five, uh, and you can tell when this was. I definitely downloaded a mod that gave you Rob Ford as one of the leaders. <laughs> oh, man, <laughs> it was oh, that was fun. <laughs> But yeah, it's it, that that kind of modding. It can totally change the game and make it uh, a whole new experience. And it, it's that's kind of neat that fans are willing to do that for free and then spend the time and effort to make a brand new game using all the bits and pieces that are already there in, in a, a professionally made game. Yeah, very talented people just who have a hobby and share it with the world. And it's amazing what's out there. If you're interested. Um, it's a lot, modding's a lot easier than it used to be. Still not perfect, but uh, Steam, the big, uh, the, the big, like, every PC game you buy pretty much comes through Steam. That's the engine that develops it. They, they, a lot of games now, you can go to the Steam Workshop, which is where they say, like, here's where people can submit their mods to play. And if you see one you like, you say, I want to subscribe to this mod. It downloads it, installs it, does all the all the work for you. Assuming the person who made the mod, who made the play as Boba Fett or the make the machine gun sound like blasters or whatever, did their job right, which, again, not 100%, but assuming they did their job right, like, it really is just point and click. And you just sort of have to, like, the hardest part is just sorting through all the stuff that's in there and finding the ones you want. And I mean, Star Wars is not the only thing people have done. There's there's Fire Emblem stuff in there. There's Game of Thrones characters. There's, I guess, like Apex and those, like the popular Battle Arena games. It's all there. But I was looking for that Star Wars experience. This was also right around the time when Book of Boba Fett was starting. Mm. Uh, and you better believe that I had a squad that was, you know, it was Boba Fett and Hira Sandula from Rebels, and Chewbacca, and Kyle Katan, and IG-88. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was a blast. And I just, there was a point where, like, the John Williams score is going, and the sound of blaster fire, and the familiar characters' voices everywhere, and it, it just, Star Wars games are in a weird place right now like they were dominated exclusively by electronic arts for years who did absolutely nothing with them that has finally been ended and we're starting to get new ones but it's been a while like there's been a drought of cool star wars games and these folks basically made their own and if you have xcom 2 you can basically get it for free if you don't have xcom 2 the game's almost 10 years old it's like 30 bucks on steam it's pretty good deal and that's if there isn't a sale, and there's there's pretty frequently sales on Steam, so you could get it even less than that, I imagine. Pretty frequently. It um so on my list, I'm calling this one XCOM two Star Wars because that's that's definitely what it was for me. Uh as thing because that Star Wars was a big part of it, but really just the idea of so many fan modifications, like all the things you can do to customize so many different video game experiences. Uh, if, if, if that's the kind of thing that you might be interested in, I got to tell you there's like, I am recommending XCOM to Star Wars, but if you don't like XCOM, you don't like Star Wars, check out your PC games, see if there's mods available. Some of them can make a huge difference 
for zero dollars, it is a great way to spend your time. And I was just uh, double checking something. Uh, Firaxis also made Civilization VI. It came out the same year as XCOM 2. So Firaxis is having a good run for us on this show. And their next game is coming out later this year. And it's a Marvel Midnight Suns game done in the XCOM style. Oh, I remember that. That's finally coming out. That's great news. Yes, I am not going to be needing to mod XCOM to get my Marvel fix. I'm going to get the official one. Well, yeah, but then you're going to do it, and you're going to say, oh, but wouldn't it be cool if DC was also in there? And then you're going to say, well, wait, wouldn't it be cool if also Halo was in there? And then you're going to say, like, you see, it's a slippery slope. That's fair. (laughs) Okay, well, why don't I jump to my number two here, since uh, time is flying. Uh, I'm also going the video game route, and uh, I'm also going to be connecting into the family life with this, because my family seems to be, uh, we are single-handedly supporting the Mario Nintendo industry. In the last (laughs) few months, we've gotten Mario Odyssey, Mario Superstars, we got the, the, the... or sorry, Mario 3D All-Stars is what it's called. That has Mario Galaxy, Mario 64, and Mario Sunshine. We got Mario and Rabbids Kingdom Battle, and we've got the various Mario Party games. They are all so good and so addictive, and they're all surprisingly unique in a way that I wasn't prepared for it. I think I sort of tapped out of the Mario games originally around Mario 64. I played here and there the other ones, but... I kind of, I guess I outgrew them, or at least I thought I outgrew them. I think I was just, you know, got interested in more hardcore games like Halo and things like that. Now, playing with my son, these games are so well made, and I I, I love exploring through them. And no matter what he wants to play, they're always a good time. Yeah. Mario Sunshine, I, I, I barely did anything on the GameCube, so I didn't look at that. I thought it was a weird concept and changed the Mario formula too much, where now you had this, like, water jetpack that you could zoom around on and you had to clean stuff. It's so good! The only problem is the camera, but other than that, it's fantastic. I, 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 have, I can't say enough good things about these games. Yeah, the... Check back a few episodes ago, if you hadn't, for our, our top five Mario games uh, with our guest, our Super Nintendo... I, I didn't even mean to do that. Our, our Super <laughs> Nintendo expert, Charles Joseph, where basically we just gush about how great Mario games are for an hour. But yeah, the... like what? I mean, I'm with you. I absolutely love these games. I think Nintendo does an excellent job of making them accessible for everyone. It's like of making them sort of the Pixar thing, right? Kids can enjoy it. Adults can enjoy it. The part I really want to focus in on because I'm just I'm I'm holding my face and awing over it. You got to tell me what it's like, like playing with the family. Ah, uh, well, every game is different. Um, in the uh, the problem, the one problem with the Mario games is some of them have uh, weird naming conventions, and I can't keep them uh, keep track of them. But the Mario 3D World thing, the one that comes with Bowser's Fury now, mm-hmm. that one, uh, when when we first got it, I would play, and my son would watch, and you know cheer me on eventually we got to the point where we were playing together and then we got to a point where he didn't want me to play anymore and he was fine playing on his own and the same thing sort of happened with mario odyssey where that's a co-op game too where one of you plays as mario and the other plays as mario's hat it's a long story and at first i was mario and he was the hat and eventually 
I became the hat and he was Mario and now he'll just load it up on his own and play as Mario and the hat and he he's finding moons that I never knew how to part of the game is you have to collect moons and it charges up your ship it's Again, don't worry about it, but he's finding these long hidden moons that I, I missed in the various times we've played together and, and times I played by myself. And it's it's so fun watching him discover how to play the game and and uh, discover the sort of novelty of this world. And And I feel like as an adult watching these games with a critical mind, I'm like... None of this all works together. Like, why is Mario in a luncheon kingdom, and why is why is this a thing in this universe? And he just goes with it. There's no questioning it. It's like, sure, he's an Italian plumber. He's got a dinosaur that he rides on. He's got a talking hat now. He's fighting a lizard man. It doesn't matter. He's just in the world, and I uh, it, it sort of reignites the childhood passion within me for these sorts of games. Yeah, I feel. I, I feel weird thinking about the world that way. I mean, Nintendo, I mean, we've talked about this on the show before, too. Like They've created a world that they're sort of like the Disney of video games, right? Like, they have these long-established characters with long-established relationships that we just don't question anymore. I just, like, is that a king ghost driving a go-kart? Of course it is. <laughs> Why wouldn't it yeah. be? I, it's just, there's something that, I mean, it helps that it's not taking too seriously, right? This isn't a supernatural-style ghost that like you're trapping with salt and burning the bones or whatever. This is a very cartoony <laughs> universe. But it's just as free and accessible and familiar as anything Mickey Mouse has ever done. Anything that Bugs Bunny has ever done. Maybe more so since... You know, Bugs Bunny of the you know, the Looney Tunes of our generation. They needed to tone down the shooting each other and blowing things up with bombs a lot. Yeah, well, they haven't uh, they haven't toned any of that down for Mario. He's still picking up bombs and things are exploding. I mean, well, no... sure, but the bombs are you know like, like round bombs uh, that have little Blinking cute little, eyes. Yeah, cute little eyes and little shoes on them. <laughs> like. You know, you know, no, there's no gore in Mario. When you blow someone up, they bounce in the air and then fall back down on the ground. They <laughs> can get those stars for eyes. It's yeah, it's it's a very friendly place to play, even if the you know, like, like no one's looking at it as wow, Mario just jumped in the air and crushed that turtle under his feet. <laughs> I think another thing that they do really well is, especially nowadays, is they've made the games. Um, that even more accessible, like Mario Odyssey has this thing called assist mode where you can take more damage and if you stand still, your health meter refills and if you fall off a cliff, you don't necessarily have to restart, it'll just bubble you back to where you fell from. And for a four-year-old, that is so helpful to, to stop him from getting frustrated or thinking the game's too hard for him. It lets him keep going and it's it's something that... I would have loved or a mode I would think I would have loved back in the Super Nintendo and NES days when they didn't make it easy at all. Like, like there are things in those games where it's just you had to keep playing and keep trying until you figured it out and finding the pattern. And as much as I guess you and I were able to do that and, and we did power through the frustrations of it, it's nice to seeing him get frustrated it's hard to watch and so when he doesn't have to get frustrated it makes it a more fun experience for me too 
Yeah, it's. I mean, remember when we were kids? Like the, you know, video games that could only be a few kilobytes. There was nothing to them but the challenge. Now yeah. they're completely different. They're like they're, most of the time they're selling experiences, and what they're selling to you now is a, a way for your son to experience this Disney esque world with a, you know, a magical desert full of vaguely Spanish inspired cactus people. <laughs> Um, and you know a taxi cab that's stuck there, and how do we get it out? Like it's like they they've just they have sold that that experience, and they do it well. I'm I'm thrilled to hear that everyone is getting such a kick out of it. Yeah, I mean, I we could keep talking about it for ages. There's more I want to say, but we should move on. What's your number two? My number two, um, I finally got to some books, so I'm not going to look like quite the cultural dead end <laughs> compared to you, although. I, <laughs> Not a lot of nonfiction, unfortunately. Uh, I've gotten really into Mistborn lately uh, by Brandon Sanderson. Um, Mistborn is one of those names that come up as like new fantasy. Uh, the kind of thing, you know, like, basically the people who want to be J.R.R. Tolkien today, a hundred years later. Uh, and I didn't know much about it going in, but I figured it's fantasy novels. I read a lot of fantasy novels. I'm sure it'll be fine. And the way this is laid out, I got the basic, like, what do I need to buy? And they're like, okay, well, so far there's two trilogies of this. And I'm like, oh, geez, of course. Fantasy, That's right? That's a commitment. It, <laughs> just, it just spirals. Um, so I open up the first trilogy of these books, and they're pretty cool. The concept is basically, like, what is the world like if the hero failed and the Dark Lord won and took over everything? And, like, it starts there. And Sanderson, like, he, he has pretty modern characters in this cool, unique setting. He has his own sort of... Actually, in a way, Graham, if you were ever going to read fantasy, which you're not, but if you ever were going to, this might be the one, because he comes up with his own magic system, and a lot of the books are very precise about what works and what doesn't. I um, like it already. Yeah, I know that's one of your big complaints about this kind of thing. Um it does get a little more complicated, but the short, short version is that like the people who are the wizards in these books, they get their magic powers from metals. And each different kind of metal gives you a, a different kind of power. And like they literally carry around like vials of like pewter, for instance, and like mixed in with I think one character mixes it in with whiskey. Uh, you, you, you suck that in, and then you can burn that metal and get that power. And it's like like steel gives you basically force push for other metals. You can push away on other metals, whereas iron lets you pull on other metals. And however much iron you have, that's how long you can pull. But then the characters, like, you develop that, right? If you've got a little bit of steel and a little bit of iron, you can push and pull on metals. So now you can push and pull on metal sources and, like, make yourself fly by, like, going from one to the next to the next, that kind of thing. Mm. Then there's also, like, there's, like, those, those are the physical metals. There's also the emotional metals. So zinc and brass let you pull or push on people's emotions to either, like, calm emotions or, or like, enrage emotions. They call it rioting. So they have okay. this whole thing, um, 
it arcs up in a very fantasy way, right? It starts with like the person on the streets who's a nobody, but who turns out to be kind of a chosen one kind of thing. And there's some twists and turns. Chosen one doesn't mean exactly what you think. And, and it escalates into the province of gods. And and it was really, honestly, I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. And I thought, okay, great. Awesome. I'll move on to the second trilogy. Pick up the first book of the second trilogy. It's the same world. It's the same magic. But it's 300 years later, and now it's a Western. Uh. And now instead of our heroes having swords and stuff, like now our hero is a lawman. And he can push and pull on stuff, but like they're, you know, it's like the push helps protect him from bullets because there are stagecoaches and like train robberies on horseback and all that kind of stuff. And it's, and I, and I want to make it clear, I en- I'm enjoying this whole series, but this Western trilogy, I freaking loved it. It's a really cool, unique thing, and I guess it's still kind of fantasy because of the magic powers, but it really is a ton of, like, like you know, the, like, like the, the black hat criminal and can the, can the lawman keep up with him? And he always seems to be one step ahead. But part of the reason he's one step ahead is because he has these cool magic powers. It's a really, I found, unique, interesting thing to do. And I'm kind of sorry I slept on it. And I'm really getting into it now. So, so far, do you, is it possible to read the second trilogy without having read the first trilogy? Is it? Is oh, no, it no, 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 no. It is not <laughs> self-contained. It is still an epic fantasy. And from what I understand, like Sanderson writes a bunch of other things as well. And he has, from what I understand, he has loosely connected them all like into the shared Sanderson universe. I don't like, I imagine you can probably go from Mistborn to some of his, what's some of his other stuff. I, I haven't read any of it, so I don't know any of it very well, but like Elantris stuff um, or Stormlight stuff. Like I, I imagine you can make those gems, but no, these are books four five and six of this ongoing story. They just happen to take place in a completely different era with completely different rules. Interesting. And, I and like really, I can't believe it took me this long to get to them. Um, the first Mistborn books, God, what were the dates on this? The first trilogy was two thousand six to two thousand eight, and the second trilogy was two thousand eleven to two thousand sixteen. There are also some side projects, and there has been announced the last trilogy of this series, which he has described as going to take place in the days of early computer programming. <laughs> okay it's like all right you know what that sounds insane but if you had said i'm making a sequel to my fantasy series and it takes place in the old west i would have said that was insane too but it was great so like <laughs> i like i'm all in i just here are my tickets like if if i could pre-order books i would brandon sanderson mistborn i seriously geek top fivers out there you got to check this stuff out it's great I mean, you say about pre-ordering books, he just ended uh, apparently the most successful Kickstarter campaign ever. I saw that. Yeah, he raised millions and millions of dollars to self-publish. $22 million to be specific. And for four novels. I I don't know what the reward tiers are, but there was 90,000 backers. It's uh, it's pretty impressive. He's doing something right. 
it's it's one of those things. Remember we had that episode on geek blind spots? Like this was such a blind spot, I didn't even really know it was a thing. But now I do, and it's great. And and again, let me like I don't want to focus too much on the western. I really liked the first trilogy too. <laughs> That's a much more traditional fantasy story. Graham, I know you personally that won't be your jam. Maybe it will because of the fun detailed magic thing. Um, but it is definitely high fantasy. It is swords and crossbows and magic spells. And it was good, but the unique spin on it is the part I like the best. Okay. Okay. Well, again, I feel like we could talk about this for a while. I feel like now I should read the books over the course of many, many months, and then we can reconnect and do a proper Brandon Sanderson episode. But for now, why don't I jump to my number one? You know I couldn't get through one of these lists without talking about comic books. But this is a slightly different uh, version of comic books than I've talked about before. Uh, going back to the the late 2000s, like we're talking 2007, 2008, there, Marvel made a deal with this company. I think they're called Gitcore, which is sort of an unfortunate name. But they they released on, at first CDs and then DVDs, scans, PDFs of entire runs of comic books and and usually when i say a run of a comic book i mean like a specific writer or artist or, or both on a comic book but for this case the, the first one was amazing spider-man and it was every issue of amazing spider-man from 1962 through to 2000 i probably three or four when that first edition came out mm-hmm. it was initially on 11 cds Eventually, they re-released it on one DVD, and and then after that, they did a bunch of other ones. At the time, digital comics weren't really a thing outside of illegal scans, and so this was an attempt to to get in on that market. I think where it was like, well, you, you're gonna you're willing to read these on a computer. Here's official scans from Marvel of all of our comics of this title. All of it for fifty to seventy dollars, I think, probably. But then, shortly thereafter, they realized that they were leaving a lot of money on the table, and Comicsology came in, and all the various other places that you could buy comic books legally on. And instead of getting an entire run, you just get it in chunks, like you would a trade paperback. And these disappeared. They they got rid of the license. Uh, there were some that were still in the works that didn't end up getting made. And at the time, I bought the Avengers one. There was It's had every issue of the Avengers from back in the 60s through to the end when uh, Brian Michael Bendis did the disassembled storyline. And then the first arc or two of New Avengers when he restarted the Avengers. And I got it and I was like, this is great. I don't really know that much about the Avengers at the time. This is a good way for me to do it. And I think I was, my plan was to start reading from the beginning and go all the way through. And <laughs> I, read, I read some of those early Stanley Jack Kirby issues. And I, I, at the time, I was just like, this is agonizingly slow paced and it's taking me forever. And I just, it killed it for me. Now I'm getting more and more of these old comics on Comixology and and I'm realizing what a treasure trove this was. And and if I hadn't just been laser focused on just reading from the beginning and, and if I just found specific arcs to read, I would have enjoyed it more. And I was kicking myself that I only got the one 
years and years ago, I found I, I, every once in a while I would do a search on Amazon or eBay to see if I could find them at a good price, and they would always be hundreds of dollars when I saw them. Uh, finally, I saw a Fantastic Four for like fifty bucks. I got that for years. I just had the Fantastic Four and the Avengers. A couple of weeks ago, I went into a used bookstore, and behind a glass case, they had Spider-Man, Uncanny X-Men, and the Incredible Hulk sitting there. And I had got all of them. I, I did a week later, but in the <laughs> moment when I saw them, I hesitated. I was like, that's a lot of money to drop at once. They were $50 each. I hesitated. And then I kicked myself and I had like a mini panic attack and I called the store and they don't hold the books. And I had to like rush over as soon as they opened the next day and I bought them all. And now I've got them. I've got everything almost. <laughs> it feels like I have like the most important stuff that Marvel published for from for decades now. And there's scans that have everything. They got the front cover, back cover, everything in between from ads to letters pages. It's glorious. And they're so poorly protected that it's very easy just to go in and copy and paste these PDFs and put them on my tablet or, or anywhere else. It's, it's fantastic. And, and I can't believe they exist. And I wish that I could get the rest of them. Ah, they're so good. So you're, the number one item on your list is basically that you now own all the comic books. <laughs> yeah. It's basically yeah. what we're talking here, right? <laughs> yeah. All the comic books that I could ever want. It, stuff Like I remember last week I was saying that Spider-Man's not my favorite guy. I have every Spider-Man issue now, almost. <laughs> you know, it gets a little weird in the 90s when they were publishing Amazing and Spectacular and Peter Parker and Adjectiveless Spider-Man, and they were all connected. I'm going to have, like, part one and six of a storyline and miss everything in between, but I still have them, and I can figure it out. It's fantastic. So you've talked a couple of times on this show about your, like, frequent Dollarama runs where you find, like, the occasional back issue. Like, is that... Is that dead now because you have everything? Oh no, of course not. I mean, there's still those are uh, there's a lot of DC there. I don't have any of DC thanks to ah, this. Okay, there we go. <laughs> all right, yeah, I should specify you have all of the good Marvel books, but there's still yeah, yeah. I, okay. I've got the flagship Marvel stuff, and then I'm also you know you never know what you're gonna find. Like I got a uh, a book uh, recently at a Dollarama that was mostly West Coast Avengers, and the Avengers DVD is just your mainstream main Avengers book. So the side books are are missing. Like. The Uncanny X-Men one was the one I was sort of on the fence the most about because I've got so much of the Claremont stuff, and that's the meaty chunk of of X-Men content. And by the 90s, that franchise had exploded with New Mutants and X-Factor and Excalibur and X-Force. So all of those are missing, but I still have the main book that they all revolve around. All of those are like asteroids in orbit around Uncanny X-Men, and now I've got the entire run of Uncanny. Amazing. Or spectacular, yes. or uncanny, or, or, <laughs> or Peter Parker, or yeah. what? Yeah. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right. I mean, yeah. There's not much to say about that, I guess. I mean, especially, I mean, the key to me is that you can move them onto like a portable device, like a tablet or something. Like that's the that's the thing, right? Like I don't want to be sitting at my computer desk reading comic books, but if it's easy just to shuck onto something mobile, that's phenomenal. That's like the ideal way to do it. I can't believe how easy it is. It's it's must have been in this era 
when everyone started to do more stuff with DVDs and DVD ROMs, but they hadn't locked down the security stuff, it's it, it's literally drag and drop. You just open up the disc and they're just there, all the PDFs. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, hey, you legally paid for them. You can do whatever you want. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't want to see your name up on a like a torrent <laughs> or anything. I would never, ever do that. This is purely for my personal use. Good man. Good man. Awesome. Well, well, congratulations. Like, I feel like Thank you. like this is like like you've you've achieved some like, like this is on your bucket list, kind of. Yeah, yeah. It was a bucket list I'd kind of given up on uh, because they're so hard to find. OK, uh, what's your number one? My number one. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. OK. Uh, hi, audience. Uh, my name is Jesse Kirschenbaum and I have an Elden Ring problem. Oh, no. <laughs> Elden Ring, an action role-playing game, uh, came out February 25th. I want to be playing Elden... When I'm not playing Elden Ring, I'm thinking about playing Elden Ring. Or I'm listening to the Elden Ring so- soundtrack. Or I'm strategizing in my head different things I could be doing during Elden Ring. I absolutely considered whether or not I could record this podcast while playing Elden Ring and having it on mute. <laughs> I This video game has a death grip on my life right now, and it is just getting to the point where it's borderline unhealthy. Uh, I You were talking about playing Civ when you should be sleeping. I just did that for the first time last night slash early this morning. Oh, no. <laughs> I am addicted to this game. Now, to be fair, I'm not the only one. Elden Ring, uh, it's developed by From Software. These are the guys you've probably heard of the games Dark Souls or Demon Souls. Uh, and the like, just incredible, and not even spin-off, but the, just I really love this one, Bloodborne, which is the same kind of game. It just didn't follow the same title structure. This is a specific style of action role-playing game that is... I mean, the short, short version is that it it is not easy. It is not hand-holding. It is, in the way that Mario games are selling an experience, this is a challenge. You have to learn how to play this game or you are going to die. And then once you learn how to play it, you will continue to die frequently. You are never safe in this game. However, it is... Each of these games have always been taken this approach and taken it into investigating these incredible worlds. And Elden Ring is their latest project. And honestly, going into it, I wasn't even that. I'm not huge into these games. Uh, I played Bloodborne. I liked it. I didn't do the Souls one so much. But this one was marketed as it's a Souls type with that kind of combat and deep dungeons and interactive challenge. But it's married to something like A Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, where it has this huge, immersive open world. And it's a cool mix, because if you get to a point where you absolutely just can't beat, well, then you just go somewhere else in the open world. And I thought, hey, that sounds pretty cool. I'll check that out. And... Every review of this game in the world, I was saying in our group of friends that I, it sounds suspicious because everywhere, this game, 10 out of 10, 100 out of 100, game of the year, etc. Folks are dying over this game. And I said, hey, it's a pandemic. What am I doing with my time? Sure, I'll buy it. And I can't put it down. Elden Ring, it's I'm a dude with a sword and a shield 
Actually, I started as a magic guy, but I switched. Um, and I'm in this messed up dark fantasy world. The world has gone to shit. My job is to get in there and listen to people mumble cryptically about it while killing monsters and try to fix everything. And the combat is fun. It's fun to play. It's challenging. These guys are experts at making a game where the challenge, it can be unfair. It can be like you just, you're not skilled enough or equipped well enough to handle this right now. But they always leave the window where the player can go, I can see how I could do that later. Like, there's never a point where you throw the controller and say, well, this is BS. There's no way that could ever work. You can always see, oh, I can see how if I get better, if I change this stretch, if I do this thing, I can see how I can get through that and fight the same boss 20, 25 times before you beat him. You always want to go back and do it again. That combined with the world they have designed is just... I was thinking to myself ahead of time, how am I going to explain this to the audience? I think in a way, a major part of this game for me is I'm playing this game to see more art. Hmm. You come out of a tunnel and you're standing on a cliff and you're looking over this gorgeous vista of this like like this lake country and there's a weird spiraling rock tower with a big manor house on the top over there and a cool castle and because of the way the game is designed, you figure, eh, you know what? I'm going to go check out what's in that castle. And you go all to the ca- And then half the time, before you even get to the castle, you'll see something else cool. There'll be a mysterious tomb or a freaking dragon or God knows what. And you'll go to check that out and see what that is. Eventually, you get to the castle and there's a quest line and monsters and all that jazz. And you beat it and you find a piece of something that lets you go somewhere else. I... God, I, I've, I was traveling through the woods, or through some woods, and I found this little structure. Hey, what's in there? Maybe a treasure or something. Oh, stairs. Okay, stairs. Stairs go to an elevator. Elevator's going down. Wow, it's taking a long time for this elevator to go down. Comes out, opens up into this huge underground river surrounded by these like ancient dilapidated ruins. It's like, man, I want to see what that's all about. And I spent like the next two or three hours like exploring these ruins and starting to get a, like, a feeling for sort of what happened down here. Why is this place like this? Who lived here? And, and like the whole and then then like the next day it was oh yeah I was going through that forest I had to meet a guy at this castle. <laughs> so there's also a multiplayer aspect to the, to the game. There is a multiplayer aspect to the game. I have turned it off. Uh, It has, so if you don't like it, you don't have to use it. But yeah, the Souls games have always had the thing where you basically, they call it invading another player's game. Like you can appear in another player's game and try to defeat them and vice versa. And, And similarly, because this game is so open and so vague on details, you can leave sort of cryptic messages for players. And I think that was probably cooler 10 years ago when they came up for it before they got really popular, because now, like, I started playing Connected Online, and, like, half these messages are jokes about Fortnite, and it was just like, mm. all right, that's that's enough of this. I don't need, you know, all these 12-year-olds who think that they're hilarious, and I just turned it off. <laughs> well, one uh, of the things I... I I'm, it, this game is definitely not my speed, I don't think, at least not at this point. I've never tried any of these games, so I, I it's not I'm not speaking from experience, but from what I've seen, it just seems like it's... it's, uh, it's not my cup of tea. 
but friend of the show Jim Zub has been tweeting about it, and sometimes some of the things he says about the the multiplayer angle of it and the messages that can be left, it makes I don't know it. it I'm sure the Fortnite staff really takes you out of it and is is uh, annoying. But he said that there were parts where he didn't know how to do something, and then he'd see a message in a place that he didn't think you could get to, and it changed his thinking. He was like, oh, well, someone else got up there, so there must be a way to do it, and it just it changed his strategy on how to accomplish certain things, and that sounded cool to me. The idea of, like, leaving hints on how to accomplish things that you don't even think is a possibility at first. It's definitely a system. Uh, it can definitely be cool. I loved it in Bloodborne. Uh, I think it's, like, it's too popular right now to be ah, used. Okay. But it's a thing there. But, yeah, like, this game can be played in so many different ways. I keep seeing, like, I'm trying very hard not to spoil anything. But like, every once in a while I see, like, here's a funny gif of something that happened to me in Elden Ring. And I'll see a guy with some kind of, like, crazy hammer weapon he's using. And he's got some magic spell attached to it. And I'm sitting here thinking, like, <laughs> I didn't even know I could use magic and hammers at the same time. Like that's huh. like like the game is all that's another thing it's it does not hold your hand there is no quest journal there are no like <laughs> markers on the map there's no you know here's a like, here's a 20 minute conversation with somebody explaining where you're going to go it's just like yep there's a you know there's a burnt out village over there it's up to you <laughs> <laughs> i and i can't stop playing i want to explore this world i want to understand what's going on i want to see all the cool things there are to see and while i do it i want to have cool sword fights with like weird trolls and animated dead with like grim reaper scythes and just that's that's another trademark of this game like the Souls games and Bloodborne especially were horror games. This is a dark fantasy game, but there is still some horrific stuff in here. There's some like, oh my god. It's like, like it's, and I'm kind of a horror guy, so that works for me too. But it's just like, they have, it's an incredibly creative place to be. And on top of a hundred other reasons to love this game, that is really working for me right now, especially because of the stagnancy of isolation and the sameness of you know nine to five. You know, even in, like even without masks and vax passports, it wasn't great. With barely being able to leave the front door, that's been well. Now I just I get on my magic horse goat thing. And I pick a direction. Like, I look at the map, and I'm like, it looks like there's something drawn on there. That's probably a building. Let's go see. And then six hours later, like, there'll be a wizard duel, right? (laughs) (laughs) There's just so many cool things I want to do. I want to play it right now. I want to be in that (laughs) world. And I just keep getting stronger, and I keep getting better, and I keep having these super challenging fights, and I finally come out ahead, and I'm punching the air and jumping up and down and it's it's just it's such an experience and i have so many more examples of things that i could provide but i specifically don't want to say them because this game is at its best when it surprises you with these things so if any of that even sounds remotely up your alley I just I, look. I'm not the only one saying it. The entire internet is saying this is one of the best video games of all time. Uh, I don't know if adding my voice to that makes a difference, but 
holy crap, I, I like this game an unhealthy amount. <laughs> and I'm I'm looking over my PTO, like my vacation time, and trying to see, like, if I could just take a, a few days off work, I, I bet I could really <laughs> make a lot of progress. All right, well, why don't we wrap up so that you can get back to it? Basically, yeah, I have to get back to Elden Ring. If you've been playing Elden Ring and you have thoughts about Elden Ring or questions or comments or concerns about Elden Ring... <laughs> Or anything else that we've done, if any of Graham's film archaeology or any of that jazz. Um, we would love to hear from you. Uh, Graham, how can they get that to us? Please email us at geektop5 at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash geektop5. We're on Twitter at geektop5. And you can also go to our website, geektop5.com, and leave comments under every episode. They have their own pages and own uh, their own comment boards. And please go to your podcatcher of choice and rate and review us. Those ratings and reviews make a huge difference to us. Uh, it's besides great to hear. It also helps us figure out sort of how and where the podcast is being used. It helps us make it better. Um, thank you so much for any of those that you can post and any of the comments and stuff that you submit. We, I mean, a big part of doing the show is the interactions we have with the community. We love it when you get in touch with us. Um, we you know, love to get back in touch. And the, heck, some of our guests on the show have been people who just you know had so much to say that they needed to be on themselves. So we're doing it for you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to do this kind of thing. Uh, it is a blast. While we're giving out thanks, uh, would be remiss not to mention uh, Oliver Wickham, guy behind our theme song. He's a music producer. He's got a bunch of stuff on Spotify. Please check that out uh, when you're not too busy playing Elden Ring or reading all of the Marvel comic books or anything else that we listed on this uh, on this episode. Plenty of stuff that we have been doing to, to get by and more than enough to keep you busy until we get a chance to do this again. Until then, I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And this has been Geek Top 5. We'll talk to you again next week.